Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Catherine Knight. But first, your true crime headlines. An escaped Nevada inmate who walked away from a Carson City prison camp was arrested at a Northern California home where another man was found dead. On Tuesday, 34-year-old Jonathan Colin Autry was taken into custody on suspicion of homicide at an apartment in the Sacramento suburb of Antelope, according to a statement from the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office. On Sunday, Autry walked away from the Stewart Conservation Detention Camp in Carson City, Nevada, which houses up to 360 minimum custody and community trustee inmates. Autry was serving two to five years for money fraud, according to the Nevada Department of Corrections. On Tuesday, Sacramento County Sheriff's deputies were called to the Antelope apartment to check on the welfare of its resident, but couldn't get the man inside to answer the door. Persistent checking revealed that a man who was unknown to the resident's family was inside. The sheriff's office said that when deputies tried to detain Autry, he became combative. Once detained, deputies entered the apartment and found the resident dead inside. His cause of death and name have not yet been released. A Montana man was found guilty this week in the 2019 strangling death of a woman who gave him a ride home from the casino where she worked. Yellowstone County jurors deliberated for about two hours on Monday before finding 24-year-old Diego Hernandez guilty of deliberate homicide in the death of 57-year-old Lori Bray. Bray was last seen giving Hernandez a ride home after her shift at the Cedar Ridge Casino early on October 1, 2019. Bray's car was later found abandoned north of Laurel. Her purse, cell phone, and clothing were found inside the car. Her wallet had been emptied of its cash. Three miles away, her naked body was found in a ravine. DNA found under her fingernails matched a sample obtained from Hernandez, who had scratches on his face. Hernandez had pleaded not guilty to the charge and claimed that he and Bray knew one another and had a sexual relationship. Hernandez and Bray did not have prior contact or knowledge of one another before October 1st, according to phone records from Bray's phone and her actions toward Hernandez seen on the surveillance footage. Prosecutors used video evidence and statements from Hernandez to prove that Bray had agreed to give him a ride home from the Cedar Ridge Casino where she worked on the night of her death. Witness testimony showed that Hernandez did not have scratches on his face prior to meeting Bray that night. The prosecution presented the jury with video evidence of Bray locking up and leaving the casino minutes after midnight and driving off with Hernandez in the vehicle. Mud was also found in the car along with a broken turn signal stock and clothing spread around the vehicle, indicating that there had been a fight or a struggle. Bray died from manual strangulation with blunt force injuries noted by the medical examiner as a secondary contributing factor. The defense did not put on any testimony. Hernandez said nothing as he was handcuffed and led away. 
a 14-year-old boy, was charged with murder and child molestation on Monday in the asphyxiation death of a six-year-old girl in northern Indiana. St. Joseph County prosecutors filed a petition for delinquency in juvenile court against the teenager. Deputy Prosecutor Chris Franck said the petition for delinquency alleges three counts against him in the death of six-year-old Grace Ross, murder, felony murder, and child molesting. Grace was found dead on March 12th in New Carlisle, about 75 miles east of Chicago, about two hours after she was reported missing. Authorities have not released the name of the boy because he has not been charged as an adult. The state will consider the results of a psychological and competency evaluation before making a decision on whether to waive the case to adult court. Franck said, quote, In juvenile court, there are a lot of options that aren't available in adult court. We want to make sure whatever course we take is well thought out, well reasoned, and the best course to ensure that we are seeking justice and protecting the community. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Catherine Knight. But first, a quick break. Here at Murder Minute, we focus on the facts and skip the chit-chat. But sometimes, there's more to the story. Conflicting reports, rumors, theories, unverifiable witness accounts, and more. Now, you can join us live every Saturday as we dissect and discuss every detail during our weekly Murder Minute post-mortem, only on Stereo. Stereo is a free live broadcast social platform that enables people to have real conversations in real time. On Stereo, you can ask me questions about the case, tell me your theories, and even suggest stories for future episodes. Murder Minute is excited to offer you this killer new way to interact with us. Join us Saturdays for a live Murder Minute postmortem on the Stereo app. Download the free Stereo app and select Murder Minute so that you can connect with us whenever we're live. Just go to Stereo.com slash Murder Minute to get started. And stay tuned for more details on how to join us on Stereo at the end of this episode. If you have 30 free minutes, you never have to worry about a break-in at home ever again. That's how quick and easy it is to set up a security system from SimpliSafe. It's the kind of thing that's so easy to do, you can do it during a Netflix binge, watching the game, or say, listening to a certain podcast. SimpliSafe Home Security delivers award-winning 24-7 protection. With SimpliSafe, you don't just get an arsenal of cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. Simply Safe has your back day and night, ready to send police, fire, or EMTs when you need them most straight to your door. Simply Safe arrives to your house in about a week, which means that if you order now, by this time next week, you and your family can go to bed knowing that your home is being guarded. Simply Safe is incredibly easy to customize for your home. Just go to simplysafe.com slash murderminute and choose the exact sensors you need. 
or get help from one of their experts. There's no long-term contract, no hidden fees, or installation costs. Just go to simplysafe.com slash murderminute today to customize your system and get a free security camera. That's S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash murderminute. You'll also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. That's simplysafe.com slash murderminute. Born in Tenterfield, Australia on October 24, 1955, Catherine Mary Knight was a child of scandal. She was the product of an affair between her mother, Barbara Rogan, and her father, Ken Knight. Barbara was a married woman and a mother of four boys with her husband, Jack. Ken and Jack were co-workers. When the affair came to light, the backlash in their small conservative town forced Barbara and Ken to move away. Barbara's two oldest sons stayed with their father. The two younger boys went to live with an aunt in Sydney. But Barbara and Ken went on to have four more children together, two of them twin girls. One of them named Catherine. And far from leaving their troubles behind in Tenderfield, they were just beginning. Ken Knight was a violent alcoholic who raped Barbara multiple times a day. Barbara often told her daughters the details about her sex life and how she hated sex and men. In 1959, when Catherine was four years old, Jack died. So Barbara's two oldest boys moved in with Barbara and Ken. Until the age of 11, Catherine Knight was continually sexually assaulted by several family members. In school, she performed poorly and became a loner, remembered by classmates as a bully who terrorized smaller children. She assaulted a boy at school with a weapon and was once injured by a teacher who was later found to have acted in self-defense. At age 15, Without ever learning how to read or write, she dropped out and went to work as a cutter at a clothing factory. A year later, she landed her dream job at a slaughterhouse. A 16-year-old girl cutting out the internal organs of animals at the abattoir. She was so good at it that she was quickly promoted to boning and was given her own set of butcher's knives. Catherine loved the knives so much she hung them over her bed so that they would always be handy if she needed them. It was there at the butcher shop in 1973 that 18-year-old Catherine met her future husband, David Kellett. Kellett had previously worked for the railways at Coffs Harbor, where his best friend was killed in front of him in a shunting accident. Later, in 1968, he witnessed a train hit a school bus in Kempsey, killing six children. David assisted in the rescue effort and removing the bodies. 
Perhaps it was the trauma of these incidents that pushed him to drink. His behavior and work performance deteriorated, and eventually he lost his job and went to work at the nearby Aberdeen Abattoir. A raging alcoholic, David Kellett was often violent and prone to getting into fistfights, much like Catherine's father. Far from being turned off by this, Catherine participated. She herself was well known in Aberdeen for threatening anyone who crossed her. The following year, in 1974, Catherine and David married. When they pulled up to the service on Catherine's motorcycle, David was drunk. Catherine's mother, Barbara, warned David that he didn't know what he was dealing with. The old girl said to me to watch out, David would later recall. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her or she'll fucking kill you. And that was her mother talking. She told me that she's got something loose. She's got a screw loose somewhere. And she was right. On their wedding night, Catherine tried to strangle him. Because he fell asleep after only having intercourse with her three times. It was the first of many acts of violence. When David came home late from a darts competition, a heavily pregnant Catherine burned all of his clothing before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying pan. David fled, collapsing in a neighbor's house, and was later treated for a severely fractured skull. Police wanted to charge Catherine Knight, but she turned on the charm and convinced David to drop the charges. In May of 1976, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ann, David Kellett left Catherine for another woman and moved to Queensland. The next day, witnesses saw Catherine pushing the newborn in a pram down the street, violently rocking it from side to side. Catherine was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital and treated for postnatal depression. After she was released, she placed two-month-old Melissa on the train tracks. Shortly before the train was due, she then went into town, stole an axe, and threatened to kill people. A local man found baby Melissa on the tracks and rescued her, and Catherine was again admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital. A few days after her second release, Catherine slashed a woman's face and demanded to be driven to Queensland to hunt down her husband, David Kellett. The woman escaped when they stopped at a service station. When police arrived, Catherine took a boy hostage and threatened him with a knife. This time, Catherine was admitted to Morissette Psychiatric Hospital for an extended stay. During her several months there, she told nurses that she intended to kill the mechanic at the service station who had fixed David's car, because that's what made it possible for him to leave her. When police informed David Kellett of what had happened, he left his girlfriend 
and moved back to Aberdeen to be with Catherine. On August 9, 1976, Catherine Knight was released into the care of her mother-in-law and moved with her husband to Ipswich. There she got a job at Dinmore Meatworks and the couple attempted to repair their marriage. In 1980, they had a second child, another daughter, Natasha Marie. But in 1984, David Kellett left Catherine a second time. This time, for good. In 1986, Catherine Knight jumped into a whirlwind romance with a local miner, 38-year-old David Saunders. Within a few months, he moved in with her and her two daughters. However, he kept his apartment. Catherine was suspicious. She became violently jealous and often threw him out of her house, only to later beg him to return. In May of 1987, she slit the throat of his two-month-old dingo puppy in front of him to show him what she was capable of if he ever cheated on her. Then, like her husband, she knocked him unconscious with a frying pan. Still, they stayed together. And in 1988, they had a daughter, Sarah. David Saunders decided to put a deposit on a house for the family. Catherine decorated it floor to ceiling with animal skins, horns, animal traps, machetes, rakes, and pitchforks. But David Saunders wouldn't live there long. When Catherine hit him in the face with an iron and stabbed him in the stomach with a pair of scissors, he left and went into hiding. Catherine attempted to look for him, but no one admitted to knowing where he was. When David Saunders returned several months later to see his daughter, he discovered that Catherine had gone to the police, claiming to be afraid of him, and obtained an apprehended violence order against him. Catherine then moved on to John Chillingworth, a co-worker, and in 1990 gave birth to her fourth child, a son, Eric. Their relationship lasted three years and ended when John Chillingworth discovered that Catherine had been having an affair with John Price. John Price was a divorced father of three. When Catherine moved in with him in 1995, his two older children seemed to like her, and the relationship seemed to be working. John was well aware of Catherine's history of violence, but apart from some intense arguments, in the beginning, life was a bunch of roses. John made enough money as a miner to keep her comfortable, and for a few years, they seemed to be happy together. But in 1998, when she suggested that they get married, and he declined, Catherine turned violent. She decided to frame John Price for stealing things from his company as revenge and it cost him his job. The items were out-of-date medical kits that he'd salvaged from the trash, but he couldn't prove it. After 17 years on the job, he was fired. John kicked her out the very same day. But like so many others before him, John Price was persuaded to give Catherine 
a second chance. After a few months, they started seeing each other again, but he refused to let Catherine move back in. According to their friends and neighbors, that's when the violence began to escalate. The fighting became more frequent, and most of John's friends would have nothing to do with them. In February of 2000, an argument between them escalated to Catherine attempting to stab John in the chest. He'd finally had enough. John took out a restraining order in an attempt to keep his family safe. In fear of what Catherine might do, John Price told his co-workers that if he ever went missing, it was because Catherine Knight murdered him. They urged him not to return to his home, but John Price feared that if he didn't, Catherine would kill his children. On February 29, 2000, John Price came home from work to find no one home. Catherine had sent the children to a friend's house for a sleepover. John Price then spent the evening with the neighbors before going to bed at 11 p.m. Catherine Knight arrived shortly after, made herself something to eat, watched TV, showered, and then went upstairs. She woke John Price. The two had sex, and he went back to sleep. Then, Catherine Knight took a butcher knife from the side of the bed and stabbed John Price 37 times. He woke during the attack and attempted to escape, even making it to the front door, but Catherine caught up to him, and he succumbed to his wounds, unable to fight her off. Then, Catherine Knight skinned his body and hung it from a meat hook in the living room. She decapitated him, cut up pieces of his body, and cooked them with potato, pumpkin, beets, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. She then made two settings at the dinner table, laying named labels next to them for his children. Catherine made a plate for herself, though the half-discarded contents later found thrown in the backyard suggested that she couldn't finish her meal. She then arranged what was left of John Price's corpse in a macabre pose, the legs crossed, and his left arm draped over an empty soft drink bottle. Finally, she laid down next to the body, took a large number of pills, and passed out. When John Price didn't show up for work the next day, his co-workers heeded his warning and sent someone to the house to check on him. When they saw blood on the front door, they called the police. Breaking down the back door, police arrived to find Catherine Knight's horrific dinner scene. In the kitchen, they found Price's head, boiling in a pot of vegetables on the stove. On the table, they found two full plates, each labeled with the names of his children. On top of a photograph of John Price, they found a poorly written, misspelled note. It read in part, quote, Time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. An attempt by Catherine, perhaps, to make the murder seem justified. 
Catherine herself, was comatose. When she woke up, she claimed to have no memory of the night before. But the evidence was overwhelming. Catherine Knight was quickly charged with murder. In October of 2001, her trial commenced, but it didn't get very far. Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence. Five accepted. When the witness list was read out, several more dropped out. Catherine Knight's attorneys then spoke to the judge, who adjourned. And the next morning, for unknown reasons, Catherine Knight changed her plea to guilty, and the jury was dismissed. Catherine Knight's legal team had planned to claim amnesia and dissociation, a claim supported by most psychiatrists, although they did not consider her insane. Two psychiatrists concluded that Catherine Knight suffered from borderline personality disorder. Despite her guilty plea, Catherine Knight never actually admitted what she'd done. She was sentenced to life in prison, and due to the nature of her crime and her lack of remorse, the judge ordered that her papers be marked never to be released. It was the first time in Australian history that a woman was given life without parole. To this day, Catherine Knight refuses to accept responsibility for her actions. In 2006, she attempted an appeal. It was swiftly dismissed. In his judgment, Justice McClellan wrote, quote, This was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society. Catherine Knight is serving her life sentence at Silverwater Women's Correctional Center. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Murder Minute. Join us this Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific for a post-mortem of this episode. Hear more about the case, tell us your theories, ask questions, and more. Only on Stereo. Stereo app users can engage with the platform to listen in, seek out topics, and join conversations about issues and ideas that interest you, like comedy, pop culture, lifestyle, sports, and, of course, true crime. Stereo can be downloaded for free by Apple and Android users. Once you've downloaded the app, create your avatar and profile so that you can send me audio messages in real time. Join us as we unpack the case live every Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific. Our weekly Murder Minute postmortem is only on Stereo. Download Stereo free and get started at Stereo.com slash Murder Minute. That's S-T-E-R-E-O dot com slash Murder Minute. Welcome back to Murder Minute.